With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is a special holiday edition. It's a recording that I did in October live at FinCon. This is a financial media conference held each year. It was founded by Philip Taylor. I think the FinCon that I attended to, 2016 FinCon, was either the fifth or sixth conference. And I sat down with Brian Bain, who runs the Investor in the Family podcast. And we just had a conversation for about 30 minutes, and we talked about what we learned investing in 2016. And so I'm just going to share that audio with you today. I hope you've had a great holiday season. We'll be back with episode 139, the first week of January 2017. And you know, as always, everything I've shared in this episode is just for general education. I've not considered your specific risk profile or provided investment advice. Hope you enjoy the audio. Have a happy new year. Well, here we are in sunny San Diego. I'm, I'm Brian Bain from Investor in the Family here with David Stein from Money for the Rest of Us. And we are at the FinCon conference, which is a conference about basically people doing online media around investing in finance. And it's good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very casual conference and a very casual podcast. And uh, I'm really glad to be here with David doing the show. And um, I've had a great time so far. How about you? Oh, it's been super. Learned a lot. You get to meet. It's fun just to hang out with other podcasters and, and, and other bloggers. And what, what's fascinating about it is in my prior career as a professional investment manager, you just you didn't, you didn't really hang out with your competitors. It, mm. it was not. I mean, you would see them occasionally, but this is much more collegial in terms of, especially because it's new media in finance. And so everybody's still trying to figure it out. And so it, it's fun just to hang out. With, with friends and get support and learn learn what they're doing and go from there. Absolutely. Well, and it's it is that that the community around that is really great and helpful. And thanks for reflecting. My voice is a little hoarse this morning. This is day three of the conference, so I appreciate everyone's patience with that as well. But Dave and I talked about doing the show together, and we're honored to be able to do the show live here at FinCon. And we thought it'd be fun to spend a little few minutes talking about what are some of the big lessons that we feel like we've learned or been reminded of about investing in finance over this last year, last year doing our shows. So we're going to kind of go through, if, if we have time, our top five, but definitely some of our top lessons learned or reminded of this last year. Well, great. Maybe, maybe I could start because I learned one just, just yesterday. Earlier this year, I did an, an episode on what if a robot takes over your job and, and automation continues to have an impact on the economy. And one of the primary drivers of investment returns are, are corporate profits and the growth of the economy. And the it's so yesterday, my son and I, we, we, we bailed from the conference in the afternoon. We went out to Coronado Beach and took an Uber. And, and one of the things, when people worry about robots taking over your jobs, is the idea that, well, there won't be any replacement jobs. And just the idea that we were in an Uber, which is a job that didn't 
exist 10 years ago. And we were in a carpooling Uber, so we had a number of passengers come. Well, the one guy that came, he was so excited because his job is a scare actor. And he works at a haunted hotel. This is like, it was like his first day. And he, and he I mean, this is the scare, professional scare actor. He's done this for five years. And their team has done it for, you know, five to ten years. And, and he's, he's just so excited about relieving his stress, scaring people in, in, in this haunted house. And he was talking about, you know, he lived on Coronado, which is a pretty pricey place to live. And so, what, do, do you live there? He said, yeah, I live with my mom and stepdad. And his stepdad's business was he had a mobile car wash service. He, he would go to people's houses and wash their cars. And I thought, well, that probably existed. But no, this guy brought everything with him, including the water. He had a pressure tank. So he goes to people's houses and does do mobile car wash. And so one of the things we talk about, we cannot predict where the economy is going. And we cannot predict where, where jobs are. Many jobs are going to exist 10 years from now, just like podcasting didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, that, that's yours and my job. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have to have faith when it comes to, to economic growth and not, not always be so pessimistic, which, you know, many media pundits can be somewhat pessimistic sometimes just because negative, negativism can, can often sell. No, and I, I really appreciate that sentiment because honestly, for me, I can be on that side of, I don't, I don't voice it very often, but concerned about where things go. Just like, you know, when I, when I came into the airport to come here, I remember years ago when they were, you have the, the toll booth with a, you had a teller there. And I remember coming in through travel, they'd have, while the human was in the toll booth, they were building the automated toll reader right next to them. And I'm like, what is that like going to work every day knowing you're watching your job go away? Well, exactly. Uh, well, and, and it even the, because tra- the transition can be tough for everyone. Yeah. And I, right. I remember in Chicago, they got rid of them. And so I just went through and I didn't have a pass and you get a ticket. So <laughs> sometimes there's, there's, uh, there's learning pains. Yeah. It, it's, it is fascinating because it's, like you said, it's, I think we get hung up on the, I can get hung up on being concerned because I can't see what's going to happen. But historically, whether it be the industrial revolution or agricultural revolution, whatever there are, it, it, somehow things have evolved and oh, yeah. people have found a way to, to do things. And so we're hopeful to see how that happens now. I mean, it is a leap of faith. I mean, I, I did an episode a few weeks ago and anyway, I was just focusing on coal miners because coal miners have gotten a lot of press this particular cycle. And you look at it in, in, 1923, there were 700,000 coal miners. There was only 150,000 by 1980. And so a lot of the, the angst is, you know, now there's about 80,000 coal miners. So they're losing jobs. It's stressful. Yet at the same time, we've had an energy revolution. And so we've had a 40% increase in, in oil and natural gas-related jobs. And so jobs transition, but it does take mm-hmm. a leap of faith. Yeah, I think the transition period, like I said, obviously can still be really difficult. For me, I'm going to bundle two of mine into one. And as I've been with a lot of my listeners going back through the book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham this year, just recently, actually, I was once again struck by the very beginning, uh, the preface of the book written by Warren Buffett, when he talks about if you want to be a successful investor, it doesn't take astronomical intelligence or any kind of great gifting or even skill. So it really requires two things. The first is have some kind of sound intellectual framework as a plan for your investing Two, have some kind of mechanism in place to protect that framework from your emotions eroding it. And it's such a very simple concept, but I feel like I've seen that time and time again for myself, my listeners and readers and audience, and just very thankful for that reminder this year. Well, and I, I think it's an important concept. You, you see it in, in the very, very skilled 
professional money manager, the hedge fund managers. The, you know, as I, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of managers over the years in my, in my prior career. And one of our standard questions is, you know, what is your sell discipline? You know, what, what are you doing? Uh, because sell discipline, you know, is part of managing the emotions. So because when you go into an investment, you have a thesis, and the thesis is going to work or it's not. And you need to know ahead of time what are the triggers that you're either going to sell it if it if it worked out, or when you're going to sell it when it when it sell it when it doesn't work out, and when you're going to sell it if it does. And so that's a very important process. Just the sell discipline, but just managing the the emotion in general. I mean, the it's it is it's probably the hardest thing about investing is even if you're an indexer or, or completely passive, it, it's very difficult to to, to to hold on and not bail at the wrong time. Now, in terms of how I invest and teach others to invest. We, we need to be, I think one way is knowing what's going on. So managing your emotion is having the proper amount of knowledge in terms of you know, where are we in the market cycle? Where, where are valuations? Where are economic trends, market internals? And having that information can, can be calming because sometimes what's scary is not knowing. And, and so it's a very important concept. Yeah, knowing yourself is so important. You know, and I, I usually try to encourage people to, have some mechanisms mechanisms in place that allow you to insulate yourself from all the media and the news and everything. Like for example, if you if you are either active or passive investor or index or otherwise, set up some alerts on your phone or your brokerage account so that if it rises or falls by a certain percentage, it'll let you know. And otherwise, so if you never get get an alert, you know you don't have to worry about it, and you can kind of walk away a little bit. Or maybe pick one or two key news resources that you trust that are reliable. And just read that and then move on instead of trying to keep up with everything. Because the more, the more you try to keep up with, the more you're going to stir up thoughts and emotions. And when you're looking at investments over periods of ideally years or at least a lot of months, you need to just be able to step away from it. Otherwise, it's really hard to not want to play oh, around. Absolutely. I mean, that's something I, I, I teach. You know, members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub and my own personal investing is we objectively look at the data once a month. And, and take, you know, we do like a mini check mid-month, but, you know, beginning, beginning of the month, we'll look at, you know, what are valuations, what's going on in terms of economic trends, and just having a checkup, and, and then putting away and not monitoring it day to day. You know, not, you don't have to know what the market did yesterday, right? Because if it, honestly, if it crashed, you'll find out. The news <laughs> will find you eventually, so you don't have to be monitoring it. And then if you don't, if you're not looking at it every day, then you're not trying to, make decisions every day or, or feeling like you need to make a decision. Should I sell it? Should I should I buy it or whatever? So having a periodic scheduled check and get the information. So don't don't just ignore completely. It's important to have knowledge and not be invest blindly. I mean just the other day, even knowing I was going to talk about this today, I was checking an investment that I was looking at potentially entering into and it had jumped like significantly like overnight for something. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I want to my first thought was, I got to buy now before I miss out on more. I didn't do it. I didn't act on that. But it's just that emotional idea of like the fear of missing out. Like, look, I'm missing out on this great opportunity. And, you know, if I would have bought that, it probably been a really bad decision. But emotionally, it was really oh, hard to resist. I saw that as a professional money manager. We, we managed about $2 billion in assets. So I was our chief portfolio strategist in managing that. And we only made maybe three or four trades per year. And, you know, I would do the research, and, and it was primarily, you know, ETFs as well as some active management. But 
we, we, I would, I would do my thesis, you know, I'd write it up and I'd want to make the change. Then I'd go to our team, our portfolio management team and, and get their approval. But then I wanted to do it right then, right? Once you make the decision, it's like this hour, we're going to make it. Now these, these are very, these are long-term investors, mostly endowment and foundations. And it would drive me nuts because it would often take three days to implement it because you'd have to line, you'd, you had hundreds of accounts, you had to line up the trade, you had to, you'd do it all. But it's just that emotion of wanting, I just want to get in or out so I can start the timer. But sometimes you have to wait a few days. Well, one of the things too is that we've talked about before, in order to be a successful investor, regardless of strategy, you really have to be able to differentiate yourself from the crowd in some way or another. And one of the best ways I've found to differentiate yourself is just have some kind of a plan. Some kind of a, and there are a lot, it can look like a lot of different things, but if you have a plan, then you're almost automatically differentiated from most every other investor. I like to compare it to having a budget. Everyone will say and acknowledge, yeah, having a budget is a really good idea to manage expenses. But if we surveyed our friends on how many people had a budget, it'd probably be a lot less than we think. Then how many of you actually follow that budget would be almost nothing. So if you're someone who has a budget and follows it, you are automatically in a whole different positive category. I think the same illustration is true. If we have a clear plan for investing and follow it, then, I mean, you're setting a really solid foundation for a successful investing career. Oh, absolutely. And you need to, you need to know what your skills are. Do you have, if you're going to be an active investor, you know, what type of informational edge or competitive advantage you have relative to other investors? Because investing is an auction market. There is always somebody on the other side of the trade. You need to know, what do they know that I don't? You know, do I know something more? Because oftentimes, an example, right? We, we see a high-flying growth company, and, and we buy it, let's say, and I remember doing this in, in Netflix, right? So you buy Netflix and, and, and you think, well, this is going to do great because it's going to grow very, very fast. Well, it doesn't matter. It's not a question of, of how fast the company's growing. What mattered is what is the market expectation of that growth? In other words, do you have some type of insight where you believe a particular stock or corp- corporation is going to grow faster than what's already assumed by the market? And it's hard to get that type of informational edge. And so individual investors, it's difficult. Their advantage is their patience. They're not measured every single week against the market benchmark. They don't have to worry about what their clients are going to say and justify every decision. And it allows individual investors to be much more patient. They have a much longer time horizon. When they, and so when they do, even if it's an active decision, they can hold on and be patient because they don't have to make excuses if they can control their emotions. Absolutely. So one of the things that we've been exploring this year on, on, on Money for the Rest of Us is just the, the question is, well, what would happen if more and more people index? So we have you know, generally the S&P 500, U.S. large company stocks, about 7% is indexed. And then if you if you count those that are sort of what are known as closet indexers, they might hold a particular stock, not because they have a any type of insight, they just don't want to be underweight relative to the benchmark. You know, it's still, you know, probably 10, 12 percent. But we've looked at, you know, what is it that happens if more and more people index? Because, and I just answered this question yesterday for a member of my site, because they wanted to know how do bond ETFs work? Because intuitively you think, well, I know how bond ETFs work. But her question was, what do, they, do they hold bonds? And they do hold bonds. An ETF will actually hold bonds, but the price of the ETF can always differ from the value on the, on the underlying holdings. And in order to keep that discounted premium narrow, there is a lot of trading 
around the ETF and the underlying holdings. And so you an example of the, the spider ETF has about a 3,000% turnover every year. So you have a lot of non-fundamental traders trading ETFs and underlying holding. You have all this activity that has nothing to do with any type of fundamental view of what's going on with the stock. And as a result, you're starting to see patterns of increased volatility and stocks trading more in line with each other. They're not differentiated. And flash crashes, all because more and more people are indexing. And, and the takeaway is, is just kind of monitor, the, monitor these trends. Don't, you know, most of my portfolio is still passive, at least on the, on the, on the equity side. But it, it's fascinating to me that what is considered the best way to invest by many investors to, to buy and hold passive investing, as more and more people do it, then you start to get issues such as more, more herd behavior, more volatility, and less less diversification. If the stocks are moving, don't are moving more in tandem, then you're not as diversified as you were before. When you're describing that high turnover around the ETFs, is that the turnover where just like, for example, traders of the market, like for example, buying and selling SPY, or is that trading going on around pe- fun, like fund ma- ETF managers trying to make sure the ETF is matching the uh, the S and P? Most well, it's both, but okay. you know, authorized participants. So th- these are. And we were one at my old firm. We were an authorized participant. So we could buy the underlying share or the underlying holdings of an ETF and trade it with the ETF sponsor for the actual ETF. And so, or conversely, we could, we could buy the ETF and trade it for the underlying basket uh, of securities. And the re- reason why you have all this activity is because if there's a differential, then these authorized participants can make the spread. If, if, if the price of the underlying basket doesn't match up with the price of the ETF, then they can make a basically a risk-free profit. And, and so you have a lot of trading just related to that. And it's very important trading because otherwise ETFs would be like closed-end funds. They can sell at 20 25% discount the net asset value because they're there. There's not a mechanism to close that gap. It's fascinating. It's, for me, it's just another reminder of why it's so important to understand what you're investing in. Not in any way that ETFs, because um, ETFs seems like a pretty obvious investment. And for the most part, it is. And that's all we, we really need to know. But understanding what you're really buying and what's going on behind the scenes, even if it doesn't change what you're doing, it's just helpful to have that confidence and you know know what's actually going on there. Right. Um, another thing that I've uh, been thinking a lot about has been the spectrum in terms. I, I think of it as the investing spectrum. On one end, you know, you go to, you go to an extreme and say people who don't invest at all, but just say fully passive investing, whatever, like funds of funds and things like that. Then the other end, you have like an entrepreneur. And so what helps me with thinking about that is on the one hand with the entrepreneur, you've got someone who is all in, you know, they probably have a good majority, if not all of their personal capital invested in that company. They also have to the degree that a human can full knowledge of what's going on with that company and expectation. And so they're willing to take that huge risk because of their knowledge, their expectation, they believe in themselves and everything in their product. The other end, you've got the passive investor where you have really no insider information. You don't have any edge, edge like you've described. And so you realize my biggest advantage is to be fully diversified and trust the market's efficiency and different dynamics like that. And obviously, there's a whole spectrum in between there. And understanding that spectrum and being honest about where we are and what advantages we do and don't have, what our limitations are, and just making really smart decisions about how we build our portfolios, how, how diversified we want to be and why. What's the biggest position size you're going to have and why and how are you justifying that? It just... That spectrum really helps me inform how I make decisions about my business and also my personal investing. 
Well, I think that's important, and, and I often see that with new investors. They 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 sort of start off. In, in, they go down a sort of down the wrong rabbit hole. They want to they want to learn investing, and and they start by because they, they I want to trade currencies, which would be the absolute <laughs> worst place. And, and I've done. I've had webinars where I remember getting that question. Well, how do I trade currencies? And, and never invested before. But you see that because, frankly, it's exciting. Are, well, it's exciting, and it's. It's fine to start buying an individual stock, and I, I encourage people to start, when they want to start investing, go buy one stock, right? Open an account for 50 bucks or, or $200 and try it out just so you can start feeling what's the emotion of investing feels like. What does it feel? Because I remember buying my first stock, and, and every day, you know, I get down and I want to watch the, the, the market report at the end of the day to see if my one stock, Novell, went up or down, and I monitored it. So you kind of have to go through this, that investment journey and and buy a stock. But ultimately, I think most investors are are, fo- are best to focus on asset classes. That's what big institutional and dominant foundations. You look at the Harvard or the Yales; they are asset class focused, and they're putting together portfolios. And that's what we as investors are managing. We're managing portfolios. We we're not managing one-off investments. It's how do they work together? Well, and probably one of my favorite individual investors who's a value investor that I follow for years at Value Stock Guide. He very traditional value investing has a very successful track record. Who is and, this? Um, his name is Shailesh Kumar from Value Stock Guide. I mean he's someone who I haven't heard of him widely, but I've been following him for a number of years and I mean he's good at what he does. But when he but even he again knows where he is in that spectrum. And he's like, I will only buy one stock from any one asset class. And so he 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 has to be diversified. So he does still focus on asset classes but maybe instead of buying an ETF or an asset class, he'll find what his opinion is the best value small stock for that class, and he'll invest in it in a proportional size. But it also helps me, too, to broaden beyond the expectation understanding of what investing is. Because so often investing for so many people is buying a stock or buying a bond. That's what we've been trained to think that's what investing is. Maybe it's a few other ideas. But like for me right now, as I'm building my business, investing in the family, and I'm sure as you're building yours, I realize... I'm not putting money in an IRA right now. I'm putting money into my business because I believe the return on this business has a lot more potential than if I put a thousand dollars into this business, the chance of two or three X in that return is very realistic. Putting a thousand dollars in the stock market and two or three X in that in a, in a year or two is extremely unrealistic. Well, yeah. I, and so that's I, helpful too. I agree because investors and individuals, you're not going to get rich investing. Hedge funds don't get rich investing. Hedge funds get managers get rich. Because they run hedge funds and they collect 20% uh, of the profit every year. Even if the profit, I remember a new hedge fund manager that I, that I knew well. They started a fund in 2003. They were a small cap or a small company stock hedge fund. Small company stocks, Russell 2000 and 2003, were up about 38%. This fund was up 20%. So they, they trailed the Russell 2000 by 18 percentage points. Now, that wasn't their bogey. The bogey was to make money, so they had a little bit of shorts. But just having a long bias portfolio, the portfolio is up 20%, and they made millions and millions in that one year. Even though they technically underperformed. Yeah, because the, the hedge fund is set up to deliver positive returns. So as long as the return's positive, they get 20%. So, you know, 20%, you know, the, the portfolio is up 20%. They got, four, they got 4% of their client's assets, and they took it home. Well, David, I could sit here for a long time and have this conversation. I wish we could, but I know we have other commitments this morning as well. And um, it's a pleasure to do the show together. Yeah, as always. it's always fun. Thanks. Mm-hmm.